Bienvenidos, everybody. Welcome to episode 57 of the Jacobin Sports Show. I am Matthew Miranda, not joined, as always, by the thief in the night, Jonah Birch. Last I heard from Jonah, he was fighting the good fight against some disreputable car dealers. And if you've ever done that yourself, you know how it goes. So, Jonah, we wish you a speedy recovery and look forward to having you back, hopefully, next week. Um, today, I am coming to you live from beautiful Stony Brook, New York. Um, and you may or may not know this, but today, July 8th, is actually National Chocolate with Almonds Day. Um, I just learned that my sister, who I've known 43 years, does not like chocolate. So don't assume everybody is celebrating today. But let's find out in a couple of seconds if our guest is a fan of chocolate or almonds or both. Um, our guest has such an impressive and long resume that I could do a whole pod just on his CV. He is the dean of Nick's Film School, writes the excellent Nick's Film School Substack page. He is the gregarious host of the Nick's Film School pod. You can find his work at Fansided. I'm pretty sure it's also been at Sports Illustrated. Um, if you look long enough, you will find him out there somewhere. The hardest working man in Nick's Twitter. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. Jonathan Macri, how are you today? Man, I can, I can barely spell CV, so thank you for that. Very <laughs> introduction uh i like i like chocolate um okay. almonds are almonds are fine if you put almonds in my chocolate i will probably like the chocolate less i'm trying to think if, if there's an exception to that um yeah i won't say like unequivocally that is the case but i feel like generally speaking if i'm given the choice between chocolate or chocolate with almonds i would just take the chocolate i agree with you i feel the same way um we have our first consensus of the day. Hopefully it will not be the last. Um, Jonathan Macri, I want to talk to you today, obviously somewhat about the NBA, um, but I also just want to talk to you about Jonathan Macri, um, specifically because our show is the pod of the people and our listeners care probably disproportionately about just workers and workers' realities. Everyone sees the front page of what people like you do, your you do pods, you write articles, people turn to you when they have questions or when they want to share thoughts. And there's a human reality behind the person who's putting out all of this content. And I'm, I'm very interested in hearing kind of the, the holistic life of someone who covers all this, but has a family and has other interests and other things. So just at the start, um, and I feel very much like a therapist asking you this question, but when and why did you become a Knicks fan first? Like in your life, how did the Knicks come into your life? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, so I think I've written about this or maybe not. I don't even know. Um, so I, like many, I don't know, half of Americans come from a, a family of divorce. My parents, yeah. my biological father, my mom were separated, I think before I was born. Mm. And, um, the, the reason that's relevant to this story is when the Knicks had their big season, 93, 94, I like remember watching a little bit, 92, 93, not, not really much, but 93, 94 was when like the whole city kind of got galvanized. Um, and you know, towards following that team and my, I would be with my biological dad for like one or two days a week, like during the weekend. Then my dad, you know, um, you know, at home with my mom, you know, the rest of the time. And my biological dad was a huge sports fan. My stepdad, not so much, but he could sense that like I was getting into it because I would watch it. That was what I would do with my biological dad. 
And mm-hmm. so he got on board and it became this thing that we, we did together. So I had this, it was this weird like triangulation where I had this thing that I would do with these two, two men <laughs> in, in my mm-hmm. life separately, mm-hmm. but also kind of together. And I think there was something in that where it just made it a very uh, meaningful experience for me as like a, I was, what was I, 10 or 11 at the time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and like by the end of that season, I was just, you know. I I was in love with the Knicks to the point where nothing would ever change that or stop that. Are you fans of other teams like in other sports or is it mostly, especially, I, I wanted to ask you about this a little bit later, but things can change when you cover a team versus yeah. just being a fan of the team. Um, are you a fan of other teams? Like, Do you have time to be fans to follow other sports? Not anymore. It's not even about the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. Well, let me change that. It is about the time. But like, I used to be. I grew up a big Yankee fan, and then kind of like naturally lost interest in baseball. And then I got married to my wife, who's a big Met fan. So she's like, "You have to be a Met fan too." And then we had kids. <laughs> then we had kids, and now nobody has time for baseball. Um, I was, however, a big a big Steelers fan. Um, from I would say ninety seven. Um, I was a big Jerome Bettis guy up until about f- I would say three or four years ago, and that is a that I can't even call myself a Steelers fan anymore. I now that Roethlisberger's off the team, I could probably name. Can I name a Steeler? I had, no, I had the running back on one of my fantasy teams last year, Najee Najee Harris. Right, he's a he's okay. a player, and I think one of the wide receivers, Deontay Johnson, maybe that sounds right. Anyway, so. I can no longer call myself a Steelers fan because I can't name three players on the team. And that is a direct result of, I would say, the mental and emotional investment that I make and and the time commitment that I put into the next. The interesting thing is that I hear like NBA reporters all the time talk about how they used to root for this team or that team or whatever. And then that went out the window for me. Like the the way that I experienced Knicks fandom has changed one hundred percent since I've been like I hate to say like covering the team, but like whatever the hell it is I do. It's definitely changed, but I still like I I still live and die with the team. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were not originally a sports writer, I think, in your professional life. How did oh, you where were you initially and how did the how did that why did that transition occur? Oh God! Uh, where where wasn't I? Uh, I mean, I was I was a practicing attorney, and I got sick of that. And then I was like, I got to do something else uh, where I feel good about my job that I do every day, and also so that I went into teaching, which I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, that meant for me commuting an hour uh, each way on the mm-hmm. Long Island Railroad because I live in Long Island. I got a teaching job in Brooklyn. And I had, I, for a couple of years, I had already, I, I'd like been dabbling in writing and like, but like writing just like for enjoyment and like, I wouldn't share it with anybody. And then I had this two hour block every day where I'm like, I'm going to spend this time doing what I enjoy, which is writing, you know, and I wrote some different things, but like, I, I found myself like always wanting to write about the Knicks and write about the NBA. And that's literally where it started. Um, is like, just, it was me kind of killing time within it with a, something that I enjoyed doing. And then I found myself doing it so much. And like, eventually I'm like, you know what, let me submit this to a blog <laughs> and see mm-hmm. if anybody would, would print this online. And you mentioned fan before they were the first 
they were the first comp- uh, company, whatever, that was like, yeah, we'll we'll let you write for us, and uh, okay. kind of started from there. So you have a family. I do. Your family has has grown over time. Um, what is it? I don't even know how to approach the question because I know how I struggle with it myself. I can't imagine how much. No, listen, to... I'm an open book. You can ask it whatever way you want to ask it. It's. I'm. I'm curious about the balance and how you feel about it. Like I know for myself, there are times where there's a. I feel a conflict between if I'm going to do the best I can at this job, I have to invest in it, and if I do that, then I'm maybe I'm not being the best I can to my family. Yeah. But if I start to lean that way then I start to worry like it's such a competitive industry. If I'm not doing my best and 10 other people are, I'm falling behind like there. How do you, how has it been for you balancing the demands of the job and and everything that's grown for you with that, with the demands of a family that's also continued to grow and is, you know, the center of your life? Oh man, I wish it was an easy way to to answer that question, but anyone who has a family um, whether it's just a wife or a partner or a husband, whatever, or I mean, let alone a wife or a partner and, and children mm-hmm. um, knows that it's there's nothing. There's nothing uncomplicated about it. Um, so I I'm lucky in that I am married to just I mean, a walking saint in that she just like when I started doing this, she saw that I loved it mm-hmm. and put her own desires and because like, you know, my, my wife is currently, I'm very, very happy and, and thrilled and proud to say pursuing a graduate degree in something that she also really is like, is her love. And nice. that is something that she has been 20 years in the making for her. That was something she wanted to do when I first got into writing that she put on the back burner because mm-hmm. I started making progress and she's the, she's the mom. She's the, you know, and it's like, she felt it was important for her to be a, like she wanted to be a mom in the traditional sense. And that like, she wanted her baby to spend a lot of time with her, you know, but at the same time that entailed sacrifice. And it was like, look, you're doing your thing, do your thing. I want to spend time with my, at at the time it was just one, one child or or daughter anyway. So it worked out well. And like, I would carve out time here and there as much as I could, but there were definitely times where I was like, it was really hard. And it was, it was, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I missed anything that like, is like, that kills me that I missed. Cause, but, but it was definitely, it was, it was, there was a tension there. Mm-hmm. And then on top of the fact that I had a regular full-time job. Mm-hmm. So we made the decision about a year ago um, to basically uproot our life in Long Island and move closer to where I, my, again, my, I hate, it's weird saying my day job, but like, that is my day job still mm-hmm. as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so that we, we literally live five minutes away from, from where I go every day. And the other part of it that's key is like, without getting into the details, I'm able to kind of lead this double life and kill two birds with one stone during the day so mm-hmm. that I can be more a family man. Um, you know, when I, when my kids are home, when my, now my older daughter's, you know, she's about to turn six. Um, mm-hmm. This is a very wishy-washy answer. The, the the short version of it is like, yes, it's been stressful. Yes, it has caused tension. Moving here was like hard in a lot of ways, um, but it's also had its benefits, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know anybody who says that they don't struggle with this. I I mean, I I would love to know what their secret is because like, there's okay. just there's just there's just so many hours in the day 
And 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 that's the thing is like, I'm and I get the last thing I'll I'll throw in and I'll, I'll end this diatribe is like, I will I'm lucky in that I I'm capable of staying up and working until twelve one two three four o'clock in the morning. I would rather do that and be dead tired the next day because at least that's not time I'm taking away from my family. Right. Um, and, and so a lot of what I do can be done in those like wee hours of the morning, like post game write-ups or, you know, mm-hmm. live streams after the game and that not and whatnot. Um, you know, but there's like, there's other realities that like, I can't get around. Like my wife and I want to go on a date. It's like, okay, let's check if the Knicks are playing. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, uh-huh. that's, that's a thing. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this was a worthwhile expenditure of time for me to just go on that very long winded answer, but that's the best I, I could do. My favorite is when um, it's after the season and particularly in June and July and there's like school has ended and it's, we're ready to like, let's make this plan and do this thing as a family. And that's the day that like the Knicks sign, like Isaiah Hartenstein and like, <laughs> I have to stop. But, and, and like, it's hard to justify. I'm like, well, something happened, but it's not like they got LeBron. Like I have to talk about this second round pick that they gave a two way deal to. How about Sorry. tonight? We're recording this at 1030 on Friday. My wife and I were over coffee this morning. She's just getting over about with COVID and we haven't had yeah. a quality night together in like whatever it is, 10 days. And she's yeah. like, Oh, I just, I'm, she finally tested negative. She's like, Oh, I'm so happy. We could finally spend a night watching a movie. And I'm like, no, actually, we can't because a bunch of guys who are not, well, with the exception of probably Quentin Grimes, who are not going to play an active role on this year's Knicks team at all are playing in a fake basketball game in a fake basketball league <laughs> in Las Vegas. So, no, we cannot watch a movie tonight because I am – and look, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm the, I, I should emphasize this. I am the luckiest man in the world that I get to make a living doing mm-hmm. – like I choose to keep teaching. I don't need to keep teaching. And I feel very privileged and it's weird to even say that out loud. Um, I couldn't live in Brooklyn and not teach, but like, whatever, neither here nor there. The point is like, I can do, I can do, this is my living and I can make a living watching a team that I love and doing the thing that I love to do in relation to that team, which is writing about that. I, I, there's nothing that makes me happier outside of time with my family than sitting and writing about basketball and writing about the Knicks. It's my happy place. So like, I don't want to seem like I'm complaining because I'm not, but it, that is a reality where it's like, hey, you know what? I wouldn't mind watching a movie tonight, but no, it's you know it's a summer league game. Summer league, yep. Mm-hmm. I find um, I have I have found over the time that I've been teaching. I don't know if you have this with your kids too, or if you talked about it, but two things that have struck me working with younger people is one, more of them seem to have favorite players than favorite teams who they oh, follow. Yeah. Like when I ask who it'll be, Steph or it'll be Durant or Kyrie, and also. And my kids are in college. They have no when they want to know when I tell them I'm a sports writer and they say, oh, "What team do you cover?" I expect there to be some sort of, if not admiration, at least like a base level of respect because they're all from the city and I cover the Knicks. Yeah. None of them like the Knicks. None of them have any recollection that there was a time where the Knicks mattered. They have. I mean, it's the yeah. '90s, and the more I the more I think of that, I'm like, okay, that's thirty. It's literally thirty years ago. So that'd be like yeah. my dad telling me when I was a kid about the 60s, like that wouldn't matter. But they have no, no like their answer is always like, oh, professor, like I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, no, I like them. <laughs> and when they're good, you'll see it's really great when they're good. Like the Yankees used to not matter until the Knicks were done. 
even when the Yankees were yep. good. Like nobody paid attention until the Knicks were done. There's no comprehension of that now at all. I I don't know. I find that I teach high school. Um, mm-hmm. I find that. Well, I shouldn't even say this because I don't really remember what I was like as a sports fan in high school. My my recollection of what I think I was like at that time was like I was a diehard fan and like I knew a lot about the team and I kind of like, you know, even at that age, I'd like to think that I looked at it from a certain like not analyze. That's the that's clearly the wrong word, but something a level below that. Now I feel like a lot of the kids, and maybe it's just where I teach and the kids I interact with, where it's much more of a casual thing, yes. where they just have a lot, like, it's so far down the totem pole mm-hmm. of stuff that matters to them, and those who who have been indoctrinated into it through, like, maybe a diehard father figure or something else in their life, whatever, even for that, it's like, you know, do are they sitting there worrying about, like, who the Giants are going to draft in the th- in the fifth round this year? Like, no. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's different. It's different. Mm-hmm. That is different. Does your family like or care about the Knicks? <laughs> my my older my, my my younger daughter is one years old, so no. Um, my my <laughs> older daughter, I would, I would, I would pay any sum of money to get her to care. She just could not care less. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, look, maybe there's still time. She's not six yet. Uh, and my wife, during the, you know, the we here, the Big 15 season, she watched every game with me. Um, yes. Was like on the edge of her chair with me. And then mm. last year, just like they stunk. And she's like, I'm not that interested. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if they're good again, as you are, you know, I'm sure it'll be mm-hmm. different, but. My daughter is about to turn 10, and I'm so proud of her growth. She watches the games with me and is really into awesome. it. But I'm so proud of her growth because I remember when we started, when she was about four, we were watching. I was in the other room, and I heard her tell her mother, like, oh, that, that player is so handsome. And I was so curious to see, like, she never talked about someone being like, who is my daughter? And it was Cole Aldrich. So I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to judge her. And this is not a slant. Cole Aldrich, if you're listening... Much respect. Everyone has their own kind of beauty, but I just wasn't expecting that answer. Now, oh. this summer I was dying because she has developed the biggest crush on Obi. And oh. when there was talk that like the Knicks might trade Obi, I was like, no, like I don't even care about the X's and O's. I can't have you trade her. Like I can't have you trade her guy. Obi's got to stay until she like moves on to someone in her real life, and then you can get rid of Obi. But not till then. Uh, no way, not to. I um, I I like that. Yeah, no, my my I, maybe that's the secret. I'll get my daughter to to root for someone who she thinks is cute because she's definitely at the age now where she finds, you know, boys cute. So. Mm-hmm. We'll see. So, one last thing I want to ask you about the the job reality, and then and then I'll ask you a couple of basketball questions. Um, what is something that you have experienced in the industry that you have found like to be like a real a positive and what is something that you would like to see change um let's say one of your kids gets into this industry in 20 years like what's something that exists that you hope is not an issue for them um and please use the traditional five paragraph format when you respond to this question (laughs) no that's that's (laughs) It's it no, it's a great well, it's a it's a tough question for me to answer because like I, 
and maybe this is the answer about I don't know. I see this is funny. Maybe this is the answer for what I like about it, and maybe this is the answer for what I think should Oh, change. I like this. Very good. I, I don't feel like I'm in the industry. I don't feel Still. like I've ever been in the industry. And I, I understand objectively speaking, like I have a Substack newsletter, I have a certain number of subscribers, like we have the YouTube and we have like mm-hmm. a certain number of people download our podcast. So like I guess the metrics would say that yes, you are in the industry whether you think you are or not, but like mm-hmm. I it, so I guess that's a benefit in that I am just a guy who loves the Knicks and I have has opinions about them mm-hmm. and I've gotten to a place where like, you know, there are people who listen to what I have to say about them and watch me and like read me and all that. So like I guess that's the best benefit. Um, yeah. as my wife comes in, what? oh, there we go. She... <laughs> the reality of life in a small apartment. <laughs> Apparently, some some code just got texted to my phone, so my wife came in and got my phone. Um, the downside. What is the downside of the the downside of the industry? Is I'll just flip flip the same coin, which is to say, like before I was fortunate enough to have grown Nick's film school to the place where it is now mm-hmm. like any other human being I think I applied for jobs in the sports writing industry and my god did I apply for jobs I would I, I probably applied to jobs like covering high school sports in fucking some town in South Dakota like I yeah. I, I don't know how many I applied to but like I applied and like I never got any any bite or anything yeah. and it didn't I mean, I, look, I don't know. Am I a good writer? Am I a good whatever qualifies for someone who's, who's good at those jobs? I have no idea. But, like, it's, it is it – is, it was disheartening at times when I was like, all right, I got to try to go the traditional route and just get a job in, in sports media. Mm-hmm. It was never – that was never a reality for me because I – you know, I didn't have the background. I didn't have um, – I, I didn't study journalism. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe there is a reason why you should obtain a journalism degree to be a journalist. I don't begrudge that. Like, I was a lawyer. Like, there's a reason you have to go to law school to, like, study law. So I, mm-hmm. I don't want to put put down the concept of, like, you need to obtain the training and expertise. But, you know, it is a tough industry to break into, I think, in traditional means or via traditional means. So, yeah. Is there a a barometer or a litmus for what you think what would have to happen for you to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm officially in the industry. I'm comfortable saying to people oh, I'm in the industry. Um, no, I don't think I'll ever feel that way. That's, <laughs> but that's a, that's a me thing. That's a, that's, okay. that's for, that's for the therapist couch that you, you, uh, you, you said you, you, you know, border on, on supervising. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know what? I think I, if I was to actually really sit down and like psychoanalyze the fact that like the industry today is not anything that resembles the industry 10 or even five years ago. So like, I guess if I actually sat down and like tried to objectively think about it, I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm in the industry. Um, you know, but there are, okay. I'll give you one. I'll give you an easy one. The, The notion that I could just get a credential anytime for any basketball related thing, if I wanted to, um, that would be a thing. And like, I know that I can't because I'm not affiliated with any major whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a thing. 
Well, I'm happy to tell you as a accredited writing professor, I have looked over your work and you are a very good writer. So you don't need to doubt that. You don't need to question it. You have official credibility. That. Yeah. Thanks. So let's, yeah, <laughs> let's, um, let's take it to the NBA just for a couple last questions um, that I want to get sure. into you, get into with you. And the first one, I'll save the Knicks for last. Um, I actually want to ask you about the Lakers. Um, and it's not about, it's a, it's something that I've, I've been wondering a lot about recently, and I don't know if it's just in my own head or if other people see it. I consider the Lakers to be kind of unique, certainly in the NBA, um, as a team that you can basically ballpark every five years, they're going to be probably competitive because they just have such appeal to free agents, um, players who want to be traded, want to go there. There is that Laker exceptionalism. We may not like it, but it does seem to exist. You know, five mm -hmm. years ago, they have Kobe, they have LeBron, and, and you can almost any five, ten years. So the Lakers feel to me different than a team, certainly like Indiana or Memphis, where, you know, Memphis has a great stable of young talent. When people talked about maybe the Grizzlies should move after Kevin Durant, I thought, I don't see them doing that because I don't think they want one or two shots at a title and then they have to start over. It's more important to a base like that to have a, a five-year run of competitiveness build your fan base, whatever. I am shocked that the Lakers continue to hold out on a deal because of draft picks they have in five and seven years. And I understand the logic of, like, you don't want to empty the whole cupboard. But to me, that doesn't apply to the Lakers because if they were to make that deal and get Kyrie now, it, 2027, they'll probably have Zion or someone else then. are you? Do you think this is – wow, the Lakers are actually being very judicious and wise, and maybe they've learned something watching the rest of the league? Or is this that weird new Laker ownership that doesn't seem quite on the ball the way they were maybe under Dr. Buss and Jerry West or Mitch Kupchak? Um, I think uh, – sorry, I think my Wi-Fi spazzed out for a second. I hmm. think that – and I'll I'll refer to – uh, Jeannie Buss's tweet the other day in which she yeah. was talking about Kobe and like I don't know what she was saying exactly but there seems to be more going on there behind the scenes than just this is a decision we are making about basketball this seems mm. to have almost gotten personal and obviously I don't have any kind of source to tell me that I'm just trying to like read the room because it's like the the reporting that came out at the deadline especially was almost was like the painted a picture of a, of a management group or a front office group that was like, we're putting our foot down. And I, I personally did not get the sense that it had anything to do with like, no, we value those future picks and we're going to like change our direction as a, a franchise. No, I don't think that's it. I just think they're like, I don't know, they're... Like, maybe they feel like, okay, LeBron, you wanted Russ. We got Russ for you. Now figure mm -hmm. it out. I, I, I'll i say this. It doesn't seem functional uh, from an outside perspective looking in. But, no, mm -hmm. I, do I think they've turned over a new leaf? Like, absolutely not. Like, this is the same group of people that brought – that, like, gave away everything for Anthony Davis. I'm not saying that was the wrong move. You win a championship. Right, right, right. Sorry. But, like, it's interesting to me – that if you look at star packages um, over the really course of NBA history, very few of them are like 
commensurate where you're like, oh, that was a fair deal. Most of the time you look back and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe they got this guy. And the Pelicans got everything as far as the picks, all the picks that they could possibly want. Um, And Brandon freaking Ingram and some other (laughs) players, Brandon Ingram, you know, might be the centerpiece of a Durante. We'll see. But like at the very least, he's a guy who probably has all, I think he has all NBA upside. Like, Mm -hmm. and Anthony Davis was never, like, he was always going to be a Laker. It was was the most transparent thing in the world that he wanted to do with the Lakers. And yet, so do not sit here, I'm not saying you're doing this, but, like, don't sit here and tell me that now this same group of people who made that deal is now suddenly got religion. Like, no. Mm -hmm. This is, there's there's something else going on here. And I I, I don't, I can't say what it is, but it, it, it seems something else. I wasn't aware if there was a consensus. We're sure that Jeannie Buss, because I know she tweeted about KB, we're positive it wasn't Kwame Brown. Like, everyone is absolutely certain that she meant Kobe and not Kwame because, you know, Kwame has been piping up a lot lately. Maybe some bridges have been connected. Um, that's my one dumb joke, I hope, for the episode. Number two question, Jonathan Macri. Do you take any personal joy or professional joy or whatever kind of joy you want to say? about what has happened to the Brooklyn Nets this offseason? Um, honestly, honestly, no. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I prefer them to be doing poorly than doing great. Um, I don't like when they beat us. I don't like the thought of them raising a trophy in New York. Right. But like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm more focused on like the Knicks figuring their shit out. And like the notion that like we have all these issues, but those issues are going to be easier for me to deal with um, because the Nets are struggling. No, Mm -hmm. I like we need, I want to figure our stuff out. If we were doing great, maybe I would revel in what's going on over there more. I'll Mm -hmm. say that. Mm hmm. I'm still afraid that somehow the Nets will finish the season like four games ahead of the Knicks, even if they get rid of Durant and Kyrie. Like something will no. happen. Listen, nothing would shock me. Nothing <laughs> would shock me. Last question. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about the New York Knicks. Um, do you think the Knicks are done making moves of significance this offseason? No. No. Okay. Interesting. I mean, we still haven't gotten what time is it? It's quarter to quarter to 11 on Friday, July 8th. We still haven't gotten word of the Jalen Brunson signing. I don't think that's by accident. Um, whether mm. there's a, whether there's a player going out in that deal, I don't know, mm-hmm. but I, this front office has, has been very cognizant. It seems of maximizing value at every turn. Um, and both years they went into the season, maybe not with a defined rotation, but the notion that like, if there was someone on the team that was not going to be in the rotation, it would not have a very negative value. Um, uh, or result in like a, a very negative value proposition, which is to say like two years ago, I don't think anybody assumed Kevin Knox was going to be in the rotation, but it was like, all right, it's a sunk cost. He's been on the team for three years. Like mm-hmm. it's a new regime. We kind of know what he is. We know what he isn't at this point last year. Like there was no spot for Grimes or Deuce. 
I'm trying to think of anybody else. No, um, just just the rookies. But it was like, okay, it was okay. They're rookies. Like mm-hmm. one was the 25th pick in the draft. One was the 30 whatever pick in the draft. So the notion that they are going to go into this season with either Cam Reddish or Evan Fournier. Well, it's it's obviously not going to be Fournier. Fournier's here. He's going to have a rotation spot. So it's like yeah. when I say either of those two guys, because like if Fournier's here, barring a or a Derek or be yeah, a barring a Rose trade, right? Uh, that would be the only other logical thing. Like Reddish is not going to have a rotation spot, um, and the only way to get Reddish a rotation spot, it would seem to be to either trade Fournier or Rose. So like, I just would be really, really surprised if they did not make one more move. I don't know if maybe mm-hmm. something bigger is going to happen, but that's, that's my logic. What do you make of their off season to this point? I'm happy with it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I like, I'm probably the biggest Julius Randall hater there is. <laughs> uh, ha- hashtag H eight. T R right, um, but even I and I've said this on my show, like just looking at it, taking emotions out of it, it is not. It's just not smart to trade a potential asset when their value is at its lowest, and like I, I, you could not fathom a, a, any person having lower value than Julius Randle does right now. So, mm-hmm. I, I at the same time. I do think his issues, and I'll just leave it at that, last year affected the team in ways that went even beyond the stuff that we saw on the court. And God knows, did we see some unpalatable things on the court? (laughs) So, I mean, I think they're playing with fire here maybe. Um, But we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. Um, Yeah. Jonathan Macri, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the Jacobin Sports Show today. Um, you can follow Jonathan on at, yeah, let me try that sentence a second time. <laughs> you can follow Jonathan on Twitter at JC Macri NBA. Um, the Substack is nixfilmschool.substack.com. Um, the pod is the Nix Film School podcast. As he's referenced earlier, you can also check out a YouTube channel. Um, don't forget about us also. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Jacobin Sports Show. Um, follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. And if you have any thoughts or questions or suggestions or um, chain letters that you would like to have forwarded, please send those to jacobinsports at gmail.com. That is all for today's episode, everybody. Thank you very much. Enjoy National Chocolate and Almonds Day. And we will see you around hopefully next week with Jonah back in tow. Take care, everybody.